everybody. Welcome to a, another episode of Scarlet and Brown Stories. Uh, this is your host, Amelia Jancy, with my lovely co-host, Beth Dixon. And we are so excited to show you this interview with Paul Doty, our special collections and archives librarian, and Paul Haggett, the archivist's assistant. I'm so excited to show this interview. We're going to affectionately dub this episode the Paul Cast. Paul Haggett and Paul Doty are two just incredible staff members that we have on campus. They have a wealth of knowledge about St. Lawrence and its history. And they got me thinking about some of the facts I used to say when I was an admissions ambassador and tour guide at at St. Lawrence. Okay. And one of them that they didn't talk about to a certain extent that I wanted to just drop this little factoid about okay. was that the Brewer Bookstore actually used to be the gymnasium. Oh, really? Yeah. In the first floor, the wood that is used on the ground, most of that is the wood from the basketball court. Really? Um, in the in the students and the and the crowd would watch from above on the second floor and so the game would be played on the first floor and they would all watch from the second floor and i've had a few older alumni tell me that it was not uncommon for them to you know it's winter time maybe drape their wet boots over the opposing team's bench and make them drip on the opposing team Well, that's not our most welcoming um, habit. So we won't, we don't encourage that nowadays, but I will say that is quite amusing to to think about way back in, in the day. Um, Very true. But I'm excited to to get to this interview. They had so many wonderful nuggets of, of information and, and chatted a little bit more about what uh, special collections and archives are. Mm-hmm. So let's kick it on over to our interview with Paul Haggett and Paul Doty. So this will be edited for content and brevity and it will vulgarity yeah, it will. and so forth. Yeah. So we're going to keep the vulgarity in there because that's it. No, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah, no, of course we're going to, we'll edit it down. Um, so we'll make it nice and nice and fun, hopefully. And uh, yeah. we'll, we'll there. do you guys have any uh, other questions before we jump in? This is audio only, and I'm liking that because I have a radio <laughs> background, so I, I know I have a face for radio. <laughs> oh, my there we go. All right. We are here with Paul Doty and Paul Haggett. We are very excited to chat with them a little bit about not only how do they interact with the St. Lawrence community, but also to learn a little bit about special collections, which is the area of the ODY library they work in and have worked with students, other faculty, staff members, and greater Laurentian community members. Paul and Paul, welcome on into the Scarlet and Brown Stories podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having us. Of course, I'm sitting here with Amelia Jancy, as always. Paul Doty, how are you doing today? Good, thanks, Beth. Well, we, we'd love to get things started with just a little bit about you both, your background, how you came to St. Lawrence. What are those top things that our listeners need to know about both of you? Go ahead, Paul. You're the old timer. <laughs> uh, well, I have been at St. Lawrence for 23 years working in various capacities in the library. I have been in the my current position for only about three years and actually have none of the prerequisite qualifications. <laughs> my moving into this position was very much a late middle age reinvention uh, at a point in my life where I was really hoping for some sort of 
dramatic change just as one way to get from Monday to Friday. This position came open and it worked out that I could step into it. So my holding this particular position and doing this particular work as has been as much a learning experience for me as anything else. See, I think that's really important to hear about because I think a lot of students in particular, but even young alumni feel like I need to know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life as soon as I graduate. And to hear that, we so often reinvent ourselves, whether it be through the various different kinds of work that we do or through the various different kinds of you know, activities that we're involved in throughout our lives and, you know, our hobbies and such. I think that that's really important to hear. As a matter of fact, that's one thing I think St. Lawrence is very good for, particularly for faculty, is opportunities to reinvent yourself. Absolutely. Um, I've taught a number of courses in the first year program, for example, on the history of internet, on the history of canoes, etc., which has been a way to really reconsider some sort of topic for the first time or reconsider a topic anew, which is, of course, very intellectually exciting. What about you, Paul Haggett? We'll switch it to Uh, the other Paul. Well, uh, you know, it just kind of uh, um, came to me that that Paul and I have kind of a a similarity in that I have no training whatsoever as an assistant to an archivist. Uh, I started out about uh, 14 years ago at St. Lawrence working with Beth, actually, in the bookstore. Yes, uh, I remember. <laughs> basically hired as the, the the night supervisor at the at the bookstore, one of uh, one of two and worked at the bookstore for about two and a half years and during the late 2000s when some changes were happening in uh, employment levels and so forth uh, as a result of the uh, the recession, my position at the bookstore was downsized to part-time and I was able to come over here at that time in fall of 2010, when Mark McMurray was uh, the archivist and director of special collections, and uh, he took me on and agreed to work with me and bring me along and show me the ropes and teach me all of the ins and outs of the wealth of information that we have here, diversity of information that we have here, and uh, been here uh, ever since and uh, absolutely love it. Well, I think it'd be really interesting for you both to just really briefly tell us what what is an average day working in special collections? What does that mean? Are you going to make me go first again? I'll make you go first. Okay. Because I'd love to know what your day is like. (laughs) You know, to a certain extent, your question's a little bit of a loaded one insofar as the pandemic has really disrupted our operations. It's a little bit like the restaurant whose business model is based on having people in. So the, the normal day does take one getting into one's memory a little bit. To a greater or lesser extent, I, I would summarize by saying that a normal day as with many sort of elements of the library, is helping students with their assignments and helping faculty with research interests that happen to be about special collections that touch Mm -hmm. on our special collections. We also do a great bit of work, and actually Paul Haggett does um, the lion's share of this work, interacting with various offices around campus who want information from the archives, information Mm -hmm. about the university, about personalities in the university, periods of time, buildings, et cetera. 
And again, Paul does a lot of truly outstanding work with those folks, um, getting them the information they need, and then very often, for example, complementary to that digital images um, of materials. We also, I mean, as I mentioned, I'm sort of learning the job. So I have been in a variety of contexts researching a lot of the collections and coming to understand what what are the various component pieces of special collections and to what extent do they cohere in to a whole. And also in my case, it was coming to grips with things like understanding what is the study of bibliography. In other words, what it, does it mean to study the book as object? What does, and then turn around and talk to a class about this. Why is it significant to think about this first edition, who printed it and how it was printed? And questions like that. Uh, I guess I would I would piggyback on what uh, Paul Doty has said uh, to um, sort of the third branch of that would be doing much the same with members of you know the greater Laurentian community as you guys have have termed it, as well as you know outside researchers that find a reference to a holding uh, that we have in our special collections that they uh, need for either their personal research or their professional work or Mm -hmm. things of that nature. So whereas Paul, as essentially a a faculty member, is much more engaged with working with students, I would certainly work with students in a supportive role to that, as well as individually and uh, students that we may have working actually in the department as well. But uh, my role would be sort of a, a point of first contact with the majority of the outside researchers that are looking for information from our collections. I can imagine that you get all kinds of very niche requests in terms of research. And so I'm just really curious, like what is one of the most unexpected or like one of those questions that really stuck with you um, in in sort of those requests that have come to you both? Uh, I I guess a a couple come to mind for me. It's not so much uh, the specificity of what was requested. Uh, our, our sort of flagship manuscript collection are the papers of Owen D. Young, mm-hmm. who was you know, obviously the namesake of the library, uh, a titan of industry uh, in the early 20th century, St. Lawrence University trustee, you know, a diplomat, all these uh, you know, various uh, crowds that he ran with. And on a couple of occasions, researchers in one case from Japan and in another case, uh, somebody from Australia contacted us. And this was pre-COVID, <laughs> and they actually came to Canton, New York. And uh, in the case of the Japanese researchers, they were here for a week. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I remember their their particular research had to do with O&D Young's work in uh, the Radio Corporation of America. You know, just understanding that we have some resources that people from all corners of the world may find vital to their research. We had another another researcher just recently who was making every attempt that he could to sort of dodge the pandemic and actually make a personal appearance to come here because we had this one issue of a certain uh, 19th century newspaper and kind of moved heaven and earth to uh, allow him to come and, and spend a, a couple of hours with this periodical that he he desperately needed for his professional research. It was an abolitionist newspaper called Cry Freedom. And indeed, we own the only volume of any library in the United States, apparently. The other, I have a, a 
smallish Owen D. Young story, too. I was contacted by a gentleman from Buffalo who was writing a multi-volume bibliography of Arthur Conan Doyle. Hmm. And what he wanted was the provenance on a manuscript that Doyle wrote that Owen D. Young owned at one point in time. Owen D. Young was one of the most celebrated book collectors in his day. He had an absolutely wonderful collection of books, many very rare editions of authors such as Edgar Allan Poe and other major authors. It's now part of the Berg Collection, the New York Public Library. But he needed to know where Young acquired this uh, particular manuscript. So I went through box after box after box (laughs) of the papers we have on Owen D. Young's book collection, which, um, again, was for me in my particular circumstance, a very useful exercise in getting to know that part of the collection to truly understand what a bibliophile Owen D. Young was. And I found what the gentleman was looking for. He had bought it. Wow in Cincinnati, and there was the receipt. So I could confirm not only where he bought it, but when. So you had the receipt as well? He had the receipt for the particular manuscript, and the gentleman wow. in Buffalo was elated. He said, I could just give me a hint, give me the whole banquet. That's amazing. <laughs> it's always a thrill when you're set out on a quest like that from somebody from the outside or somebody from one of the administrative offices or even a, st- you know, it doesn't matter who it is. If you're looking for something, like this receipt buried in the O&D Young paper somewhere. It's not like you can go to our finding aid and say, okay, receipts. It doesn't say where the receipt is. You're pawing through boxes. And when you find something like that, it's it really is a thrill. I thought it was fun when you would find like, you know, oh, here's a dollar and a coat that I had <laughs> like three years ago, like that kind of thing. But this brings it oh, to I a whole other level. last time I wore that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> this is yeah, like, yeah. this is a real treasure hunt. <laughs> or when you find the receipts there and you just throw them away. Now I'm just going to have to keep them hidden in all my things just in case it's someday. significant someday. Eventually. Both y'all's personnel files may end up here. So we got to get more interesting, Beth. Okay, well, I'll try. I'll try. (laughs) Hi, everybody. We're taking a brief break from our chat with the Pauls to talk a little bit about our Link Mentorship Program, which you might remember from when we were talking with Jeff Byrne from the class of 74 uh, and his experience being a Link Mentor Or maybe you might remember it from when we spoke with Sonia Jensen, class of 2019, um, when we spoke to her in August about her experience as a link mentee. But Beth, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about the program and how our alumni community can get involved. Absolutely. So the Link Mentorship Program is a wonderful opportunity for alums with various different career backgrounds and locations across the United States and, and honestly the world to get connected with a student or two, if they if, if that happens to work out that way, who is interested in potentially getting into the career field that they're currently employed in or have experience in. These are traditionally younger students, mostly sophomores, but there will be a first year program students in there as well who are taking our Careers 101 class that is relatively new to the curriculum. And it's a wonderful opportunity just to provide mentorship give some insight into some of the things that they could benefit from while they're students at St. Lawrence, how to go about connecting and making networking connections in, in their desired field. And it's about an hour's worth of mentorship a month, although some 
pairs decide to extend that out. This year, the program is going to run from January through the fall, and we're looking for more mentors to sign up. So if this sounds like something that you would like to do to make an impact on a student, feel free to reach out to Sarah Coburn in the Center for Career Excellence office. Her email is scoburn, which is C-O-B-U-R-N, at S-T-L-A-W-U dot E-D-U. And she can help point you in the right direction of how to sign up. Or you can even log into your Laurentian Connection profile and find the mentorship program tab and fill out the form there to sign up for the program. There's no guarantee that we'll have a student for you, but we try to match people based on first their industry and then other identifying factors like what they were involved in at St. Lawrence, geographical area, and uh, even things like identity. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Beth. And now let's kick it back to the Pauls. Well, one of the things that you mentioned was, um, you know, you have people from all corners of the world that are coming um, and asking for things in your special collections. Do you have a lot of alumni that reach out and ask about things about St. Lawrence for the archives or in, in special collections? Or is there a way if people are interested in potentially working with you, is there a way for them to reach out to you? Well, yes and yes. I, I think probably because I've been here longer, I, I tend to be the the first point of contact for a lot of people that that do reach out, and on any number of occasions, I, I think probably the uh, the top reason for alumni that have reached out, the the reason they've done so is has to do with athletics. You know, someone was on a sports team or one of their teammates uh, went on to become a coach somewhere, and they wanted a picture of them or get some background information on what their undergraduate athletic career was like uh, here at St. Lawrence. That type of thing uh, has often happened. There are lots of other examples too. And the short answer is if you want to find out any of of that information, the easiest thing to do is just to send uh, either Paul Doty or myself an email. It's the preferred way because then we would have a Uh, sort of a direct line to you to get whatever information you're looking for in your hands as quickly as possible through return email. One of the things that we were talking about as we prepared for this was, oh, you know, there have been buildings like Fisher Hall that we know burned down and and some people don't even know about about that. But were there things about the the university that you've learned since taking on these roles in, in your office? Well, actually, Beth, as I look out into the reading room, we have a display up on our Milburn collection of Hawthorneania, that is to say, um, and of pertaining to Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I knew we had some very interesting Hawthorne editions. I actually thought they were part of the Peace Corps collection. But in fact, um, they were gathered together by a Ulysses Milburn who was a graduate of the class of 1891. He came here to study theology and was successful. He had a long career as a Unitarian minister in Massachusetts, but he fell in love with books when he got here, and not just reading, but books themselves, and then went out and created this absolutely wonderful collection of Hawthorne materials, which includes manuscripts. It includes letter. We have on display a letter um, in which Hawthorne uh, writes about uh, Henry David Thoreau. And it also includes first editions of the Scarlet Letter, American and British first editions. It includes a first edition of Fanshawe, which is a very rare um, edition. And, you know, these are all kind of, they would be 
cool books just in and of themselves that happened to have them. But what was really kind of fascinating was to discover who this Ulysses Milburn was and how he came to become a book collector and apparently really credits St. Lawrence with this lifelong passion because in 1949, he gave us his collection, a truly first-rate collection of materials by and about Nathaniel Hawthorne. So that really within the last, I sort of started in on this in the late summer, was learning something about St. Lawrence, that this collection has an identity, not because they're simply rare copies of these particular books, but it has an identity insofar as um, Reverend Milburn pulled them together and then having had them for the better part of his life, gave them to St. Lawrence. Wow. Really, you know, one of the things I've, I've talked with Paul Haggett about this on and off over the last couple of weeks, because on my mind has been the whole idea of a collection. Mm -hmm. And what constitutes a collection and how do you think about and talk about a collection, you know, beyond just the greater, well, special collections, all the stuff mm -hmm. that happens to be back there. What are the collections within and how do you think about them and speak about them and sort of this Milburn collection and the story of their acquisitions is, is again, kind of shaping my thinking on this. And in that way was a real discovery for me in this last little bit. It also really illustrates well, I think that in, in this case of Milburn, the connection that people who have taught or graduated from St. Lawrence have with this place that they want to leave something so significant behind and, and give that to this university so that others may benefit from what they've been able to to gather as well. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. if I didn't mention again, he was class of 1891. And Fantastic. Very obviously this collection was a, a truly a part of his self-identity, you know, I mean, something he, he had as his sort of assertion of self out there for the world. But your point's well taken. Are there other uh, kinds of collections or things like that that, you know, it would be really interesting if the St. Lawrence community knew a little bit more about some of these gifts in kind. Do others come to mind? Paul has already mentioned there's another large book collection that we have that came to us from, I believe he was the 14th or 15th president of the university, Frank Score. Mm -hmm. That is uh, all to do with Robert Frost. It's, it's not a hugely scholarly collection, but mm -hmm. Dr. Piscor was a fan of Robert Frost. Uh, I believe Dr. Piscor had ties to Middlebury College where Robert mm -hmm. Frost was educated and uh, that he spent a lot of his life in that area. So he, over the years, acquired a large collection of books about Frost, books by Frost, books mm -hmm. having to do with people that wrote about Frost, just mm -hmm. everything having to do with Robert Frost. And he left this significant collection of Frost material, which includes letters and uh, items of uh, manuscript nature mm -hmm. to St. Lawrence University. It also includes a typewriter. And I happen to have in my hands a first British edition of Robert Frost, North of Boston. And it is inscribed, well, where is the inscription? Hold on just a sec. <laughs> inscribed to Frank Score. my gratitude for several things but particularly for what he has done for many young poets. This book in this edition takes me back to when I was a young poet, a <laughs> phrase I would never have used for myself till others gave me that title, Robert Frost, Cambridge, Massachusetts, April 1962. Wow, um, that's fascinating. That 
to be one of the sign frosts in the rare book edition, which again, as as um, Paul very accurately alludes to, is one of our also real kind of pillars of our rare book collection, the Peace Corps Frost Collection. Dr. Peace Corps also in 1980, as part of the opening of the Tory wing, donated a Kelmscott works of Geoffrey Chaucer. And this oh, is wow. one of the most important books within the fine press movement. It's uh, very much considered perhaps the finest of the Kelmscott Press. I don't happen to have in front of me how many were published, but it's a, a rare edition and that we have one is really quite remarkable. In fact, down in the lower level, there is a book titled The Census of Kelmscott Chaucers. And the, somebody took the time to run around and figure out who owned all of this particular edition and where they are. And they're we indeed are in this particular book. Oh, wow. As an example of fine press printing, this is absolute par excellence. And again, this also came from Dr. Peace Corps in um, 1980. That is truly amazing. I, as somebody who wasn't always the biggest reader until I like got to college, to hear that there were other Laurentians who kind of found their love of books there too, uh, here at St. Lawrence, is fascinating. Yeah. And to see what they've done with their legacy. It really shows that there's a character to St. Lawrence that sort of has existed throughout all of the different eras of the university. And so that's really fascinating to sort of see the, the proof of that. Uh, I, I wanted to mention, Beth, you, you piqued my interest in this when you mentioned Fisher Hall, mm. uh, which is a, among the older St. Lawrence buildings that are no longer with us. Fisher Hall was the location of the theological school, it was the, the headquarters of the theological seminary, and near as I can determine was located about where the McAllister 24-hour room was oh, okay. Currently, you mentioned that it burned. That was in 1951. We had an earlier fire in St. Lawrence history that really is fascinating to me, and that was the original gymnasium. Oh. In in 1896, St. Lawrence finally built a relatively kind of sorta adequate gymnasium for the first time. It was a just a big wooden barn. They called it the Wooden Gym. Okay. <laughs> we were real creative back then. That's correct. And it didn't take too long for, for students to really start complaining about how inadequate this wooden gym was. And one night in 1925, I'm actually, I know this isn't a visual program, but I'm going to show you this picture. This is a picture of the wooden gym going up in flames Rather spectacularly, those flames have got to be 50 feet high. Yeah. It was never determined how, you know, what the cause of this fire was. A few years later, during one of the 1930s, say, uh, alumni parades, here's another picture that shows a car. And uh, people are holding class of 1924 placards. And it says uh, on the front of the car, we didn't burn the gym. Oh. What? We have another picture here of a class of 1926 reunion. They're, these are much older folks. But one of the signs reads 1926. They got the year wrong. But anyway, 1926. The gym burns. Wonderful. <laughs> so oh my. there's always been this sort of the undercurrent theory that maybe, just maybe... The uh, wooden gymnasium was 
burned down by human hand. And nobody really worried too much about it because not too long after that, it, just within a few months, they started work on what's now the Brewer Bookstore. And, uh, you know, life went on at St. Lawrence and they finally had rid of this antiquated old gym. You know, St. Lawrence will always find a way to leave a legacy, whether it be a mystery of who burned the gym slash if it, anybody did. You know, that's one of those things that I wish that, you know, we continued to talk about that like, turned into a lore of, yeah. of who done it. Has anybody written a book about it? Yeah, I, I don't know if a book was ever written. I've never seen one. Are there other buildings or structures, um, facilities that used to be on St. Lawrence's campus that no longer is? Oh, absolutely. But Lots of them. Laurentian Hall. It's kind of like the, the equivalent of the student center today. Okay, it was sort okay. of the, the student union back in the uh, post-World War II era. It was actually a surplus World War II recreational barracks that was moved on to campus. The university was very fortunate to get it because, uh, you know, there just wasn't a lot of resources to just up and build new buildings uh, in Mm -hmm. those days. So Laurentian Hall, and that was located about where Priest Hall is today. Uh, Another World War II surplus building, which I'm not exactly sure where it was, but it was called South Hall. And the music department was located there back in the day. The old bookstore before the bookstore was moved to Brewer Bookstore, was in East Hall, which was uh, torn down shortly after the completion of the Student Center, 2007 Student Center. There was an an outdoor performance space called the Gaines Open Air Theater, which was in the area of the commencement quad. Oh, okay. Creasy Commons area. Commons. Oh, there's, uh, gee, a couple of others, uh, I think. There was Vetville, right, Paul? Vetsville, yep. Veterans Village was, uh, again, built after World War II. There were hundreds of men coming back from World War II that were non-traditional students. They were older than college age, and there was no room to house them on campus and and no real room uh, in the local community either. So, uh, again, these surplus army barracks were brought in to house these young men and some with young families. And it was uh, quite a time. I actually have a question about that. You know, I, a number of years ago, probably about five or six years ago, I met with one of our She's still incredibly involved, uh, alumna H.E. Ellison, class of 1945. And she was talking a little bit about the Navy and how the Navy was basically saved St. Lawrence um, mm-hmm. during World War II. Could you talk a little bit about, the, if you know much about that? Yeah, that was the U.S. Navy V-12 program. Okay. And that was a Defense Department initiative whereby college students were taken into the program. They were educated in a stepped up fashion and they were made officers in the Navy and possibly the Marine Corps as well, Mm -hmm. but certainly in the Navy. So it was was like a fast track officer training type of thing. Very, very, uh, it's not an exaggeration that it you know, helped to sustain St. Lawrence during the war when otherwise these men that went through the V-12 program would have had to go elsewhere to get their military training before they were shipped off to go to war. Wow. It's so funny to hear stories like that because I grew up in the North Country. And so I'm always shocked when like people know anything about 
about the North Country. I'm like, how do you know where Potsdam is, right? So hearing these stories of sort of these more major national institutions, like knowing about St. Lawrence is really fascinating. I mean, obviously, earlier in, in our history, the North Country had different economics, but it's still just kind of fascinating that our little corner of the world on the Canadian border has this history. And before an interstate program, too. Sort of like for yep. Oh, yes. <laughs> so one of the things that, you know, we're, we're releasing this in October. One of the things that we were thinking about is, you know, there are a lot of urban legends about St. Lawrence, whether there are tunnel systems or haunted herring coal or anything (laughs) like that. Have you come across anything in your work or uh, just myths and legends that you've heard that you could shine a light on that might interest some of our listeners? I have one. It's not a ghost story. I'm sorry. Yes, that's fine. There are catacombs under Herring Coal that were used for storage. It had to be the worst storage in the history of storage. <laughs> Probably very moist. Muddy and dirty <laughs> yeah. and damp. And, but there, were, there used to be stuff stored there. And we've got any number of pictures of students in the catacombs. And it looks kind of spooky. But that, that's the closest thing I've got to a ghost story. <laughs> you did also mention simply an autumnal theme, Beth. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. I found um, we have a collection. One of our collections are called our artist books. And these are books in which a bookmaker really kind of uses the medium of the book to create a work of art in the same way a painter might use the medium of watercolor and paper to create a work of art. And one of them is by Velma Balliard, who is teaching now in our book arts program. And it's called November Song. It was published in 2013. And it's a handmade book. And it's a series of abstract images. But what she absolutely captures is the North Country landscape in November, the bay. Mm -hmm the purples, the browns, the grays, how that all kinds of bleeds together into a watercolor. And it's really a remarkable book and that when you pick it up and look at it again, that's sort of the, the absolute visual aspect of the North Country, of the North in Vermont is really beautifully captured by the book. And now that we're again open to the public, if someone wanted to come by and see it and have that experience of you know, enjoying this piece of art here, they certainly be welcome into the reading room. That is fantastic. And you know what, if you wouldn't mind, speak a little bit about the reading room itself, because I don't know, like when I was a student, I really, I looked at it and I went, what do you do? Just sit in there and read. And I'm like, I think that's about it. But like, what is it about the reading room that people can utilize? And, and it's not just that you sit down and read. I mean, you do, but <laughs> well, yeah, actually it kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, sit, you sit down and read. It's we're open to the public. Um, you don't need an appointment to come in. There are certain restrictions about how materials can be used. And it's the Frank and Anne Peace Corps reading room, which acknowledges, mm-hmm. as Paul alluded to earlier, the importance of Dr. Peace Corps to the special collections area and to our special collections. But but I actually rather do sort of like that idea, Beth, that it is where you come, you sit and read. I also sometimes try to talk about it as the great offline space on campus. I mean, if you want to get away, you we certainly do let people, if they wish, use their phones to photograph materials. Students are working with something. If they want to create an image, that's fine. A researcher is in and wants to get a photograph of a, a document so they can read it later, that's fine. But 
in a lot of ways, it is a great place to step back and get offline, mm. get away mm. from the constant electronic distraction that is sadly life at this time in the United States. Do you have favorite spaces either in ODY or across campus to like take a step back mm. and kind of retreat? Like, I know I have mine, but I would love to hear if you have places. Well, well this actually is one of mine. Before mm-hmm. I stepped into those positions, those 20 years I was doing something else, I would sort of come up with reasons to come back here and mm-hmm. just sort of be able to sit in the reading room and work on something. What about you, Paul Haggett? I think a lot of people sort of feel like Herring Cole is mm-hmm. a, a similar sure. type of a space. It always seems to be quiet in there. I, I guess I have been in there uh, when there were lectures or you know something else going on presentation or whatever. Uh, but by and large, that's what Herring Cole is. It's, it's another area to just kind of go in and, and disconnect from the electronic world that we're immersed mm-hmm. in all the time. Yeah, my favorite is the Ireland room and uh, behind the the dance studio and the NCAT in, mm-hmm. the, in the Noble Center. You got the beautiful kind of, it used to be like a greenhouse. So you have lots of bright windows and spaces, but there's plenty of comfortable couches, There's but there's plenty of space right there to just kind of like sit back, relax, read a little bit, look outside, have, you know, uh, a good view of Hewlett <laughs> and Jenks um, and, and like all the green space in between. Sure. Um, but it's a nice space. What about you, Amelia? You know, it's sort of funny. I didn't have as much of an opportunity to explore the spaces on campus, but I have to say, I, I also really like the timelessness of Herring Cole of, you know, you just, you walk in and you could be in any era of the university. There's something kind of magical about that. Mm-hmm. And that beautiful rose window just takes my breath away every time. So I'd have to say, while I haven't explored quite all of the nooks and crannies of campus that I would have had the experience to as a student, I would have to say Heron Cole is probably my favorite. Well, it sounds like now you know who you can go to in case you would like it's to true. find things to explore, especially. <laughs> um, Paul and Paul, is there anything else that you want to share about your work or special collections and archives that listeners may not know at this point? Or do we feel like we've left all the stones turned over? Well, personally, I think with this interview, we're going to be over. You're going to be really busy. Yeah. You're going to have a few phone calls coming your way. Let's, well, let's hope so. I certainly appreciate the occasional human interaction. You should put that on a sampler. this, This COVID era. I like that idea. You should put that on a sampler. I do enjoy occasional human interaction. <laughs> the occasional human interaction. <laughs> I really like that. Paul Doty, do you have anything else that you like? I think I'm good, Beth. I think the stones are turned over, the salamanders are running loose, etc. <laughs> there we go. Wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for spending yeah, some time you. with us today. Um, I know that I've learned a little bit. And when I'm back on campus, uh, I plan to make an appointment to stop by mm-hmm. and see some of the collections that you talked about and take a look at them and, uh, sure. and utilize the reading room to unplug. <laughs> now, this was wonderful. And just, you know, the wealth of knowledge that you both have and clearly the passion for those treasure hunts uh, in the history of St. Lawrence is really fascinating. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. This yeah, was fun. Thank you.
Well, that wrapped up our fantastic interview with the Pauls. And I have to say, Beth, this was one of my personal favorite interviews that we have done so far. I totally agree. I loved hearing a little bit more about some of the special collections that we have. Like oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, some of this, like I'm not the biggest uh, bibliophile and it sounds mm-hmm. like we have such a huge um, history of alumni being bibliophiles, but yep. I just found this absolutely fascinating. And it's all just in our little corner of the world in Canton, New York. Like who knew that we have these, you know, fascinating, incredible historical collections just, just tucked away. And that we have people like from all from corners of the world. Japan. Trying to come to <laughs> Japan? What? That's so cool. You know, and I, I really think that as we get the brand of St. Lawrence yeah. out there even more, I can't wait to see what and how our special collections grow in For sure. the future. Um, yeah. And so hopefully, you know, this is something that all of us can keep in mind as we're thinking about meaningful ways to give back to St. Lawrence. And, and if you have something like this that you think the university could benefit from or it would be better housed at SLU, hit up the Pauls. Absolutely. They will be so excited. Like <laughs> kids at Christmas time. Like Absolutely. Or <laughs> if you want to know more, um, I, you know, we're going to put in their contact information, their emails in the uh, in, in the notes here for the for the podcast. But I hope that you all enjoyed this as much as we did. And what a great way to kick off the fall of officially. Absolutely. So thank you so much for all joining us and we'll see you all next month. Scarlet and Brown Stories is edited and produced by Amanda Brewer, Megan Fry Dozier, Dennis Morial, Beth Dixon, and Amelia Jancy. Our music was written by Christopher Watts, inspired by Eugene Wright, class of 49. Subscribe to Scarlet and Brown Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a story you'd like to submit to us, you can email us at connect at stlawu.edu. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave your five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts.